all I can tell you is that uh, Friday morning, it was 75 or 80 degrees where I was, and I was pitching batting practice to my grandsons who were eating it up, and we were having a ball together. And then Thursday morning, I was sitting with a friend whom some of you met, this Samoan guy that visited here last year, Fana Timoti. We were sitting on a patio in the shade in about 80 degree temperature, uh, drinking, uh, I was having a cold frappuccino, and we were talking about ministry and life. So why did I come back? (laughs) I don't know. I've often told people that the nice thing about cold weather is that it keeps the wimps out of the state. (laughs) It appears as though it's kept a few of them out of church this morning as well. (laughs) I'm reminded of a story of a guy that was pastoring a very small church and they had bad weather like this one day and he went to preach and only one guy showed up farmer. And he says, well, what should I do? The farmer said, well, you know, when I have a, when I go to feed the cattle, if only one comes to the trough, I still feed them. Okay, we'll have a service. So this guy led the song service. His wife played the piano. He sang a special number. He collected the offering. He made the announcements. He preached a full sermon. He went to the back to meet his congregation of one as the guy filed out of church. And the guy says, you know what? If only one cow comes, I don't give him the whole load. (laughs) But you are going to get the whole load because I prepared this baby and I'm not cutting it up for anybody. (laughs) I want you to play a game of suppose with me this morning. Excuse me. nice to have an off and on switch. Suppose people with whom you identified and whom you loved were poised on the verge of a great battle. They weren't greenhorns at this by any means, but even so, the impending skirmish was not to be taken lightly. There was going to be a war. The enemy is real. The danger is real. The casualties are going to be real. What would you wish for your warrior friends? Think about it. What would you wish for them? We'd have a long list if we were to have a whiteboard up here or a blackboard and begin to write your suggestions down, but I can anticipate a few. One of the things you'd wish for would be good equipment. You can't fight a war if you don't have good equipment. Another thing you'd wish for is fair weather. Who wants to fight a war in sweltering heat or in extreme cold, especially if you don't have the proper clothing for it? Thank you very much. I was hoping for a double latte, but that'll do. (laughs) I don't think this will fit in here. We've tried this before. Oh, yes, it does. Good. Thank you. People on the recording are going to say, what are they doing there? You would wish for fair weather. You'd wish for a way of escape in the event that the battle didn't go well. 
You'd wish for wisdom to be certain that they'd know the right tact to take. There are a lot of things we'd wish for. If also what you would wish for would be that they would be given capable leadership and practice good followership, you have just perfectly matched the sentiments of an onlooker of just such a scene two millenniums ago. His name is Peter. His wish, actually it was his counsel, was expressed to ensure that those whom he addressed, warriors in the faith, would do well. In light of the fact they're going to bear the weight of the world and experience the abuse of people. I want to read his counsel to you today. <clears throat> You'll find it in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Then we're going to talk a little bit about what he says. We're going to break it down. My reason for doing this is because as members of the family of God, we are present-day warriors. People don't get this too often in our churches. We get the idea, in fact, the church has sometimes been called by some people a country club. We get the idea that uh, sometimes that this is where we come to take it easy. No, this is come where we come to sign up for service. This is where we come to worship. This is where we come for repose. It's where we come for action. Because we are in a war. We face the weight of the world and we face the, the potential abuse of people. And it's imperative that our leadership and our followership as well have the privilege of counsel. And here's some of the counsel that Peter gives us. Verse 1, chapter 5. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Elders, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. Serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you're willing. As God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I can almost bet today that some people that are within the hearing of this message are going to think that they're hearing somebody else's mail being read to them. What in the world does this have to do with me? The answer is everything. Because you're a member of the church. You're part of God's flock part of God's army. And we need to know something about how, how God has set things up for us so, so that we have organization and we know how to function. So we're not listening to someone else's mail. We're listening to a strategic message about ourselves. Let's say a word or two about elders, who they were and who they are. They're sort of the officers in this army, if you will, about to do battle. They were and are men who are recognized for their maturity. Generally speaking, and only generally, they were older in age. But chronological age is not an absolute. Um, the term is derived from the fact that older men in the Old Testament were role models because of their years, which brought them wisdom. But we know that age doesn't necessarily equate to wisdom. That's why we have the expression, there's no fool like an old fool. 
We also know that there are young men, and we all know a few of them, that are wise beyond their years. So the picture of what we see here is wise men, according to Peter, who are going to uh, function in a strategic place in this army, are to be recognized. They're generally older, but not always. But they're wise men. Not only were, uh, were they older in age generally, but their experience in Christian living and in life in general was a must. In fact, that's why Paul says, don't appoint a new convert lest you become conceited and fall into condemnation incurred by the devil. Let me read that to you from another translation. I think it makes it more clear. Don't pick a new Christian to be an elder because he may be proud of being chosen so very soon and be... uh, Can't read my own printing here. Well, anyway, he might be taken taken advantage of According to, because of his pride, he might be taken advantage of by Satan. That's pretty good counsel when you think about it. Elders were and are men who give leadership. They're wise men. They're men in a position of influence. There are a lot of names in the Bible, terms in the Bible, that give us information about how they function. One of them is elder. Presbuteros is the term, the, biblical, the Greek term. One is bishop or overseer. Episcopos is the term. One is pastor or shepherd. Poimen is the term. By the time Paul meets with the elders in Ephesians chapter 20 toward the end of the book of Acts, it appears as though he uses all three of these terms interchangeably. The terms distinguish between the title of an office, elder, and its practical functions, overseer and shepherd. So the bottom line is this. Elders are men God has given the church, recognized for their spiritual maturity and their wisdom. They serve the local church by giving oversight to it through shepherding the flock. Key word. We'll come back to it in a second. This word shepherding. There was a plurality of elders in the local church, more than one. And there was a difference in maturity levels for elders from congregation to congregation. In one congregation, you'd find a number of older men to pick from. In another congregation, maybe not so. And in a given congregation, over a a period of time, as the congregation grew in grace and knowledge of the Lord, some men who might qualify, qualify to be elders today, in 20 years from now, as the church has grown, may not qualify because the maturity level goes up. But you get the point. God has given us help in the form of men to lead the church, and the church is at war. Get the picture? Let's say a word or two about what elders do. We've talked a little bit about what they are. We find what they do in verse 2. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. What do they do? They shepherd. That's a really rich term. It's a very descriptive term. What does a shepherd do? He protects, among other things. At times, pushing the picture to its extreme, even to the laying down of his own life for the sheep, he protects. The idea is the shepherd's life, the elder's life, I should say, or shepherd, 
uh, is on the line at all times. He is invested emotionally. He's involved. He's not just a hired hand. He doesn't just put in his time and go home. He protects the sheep. He sees to the sheep's nourishment. The New Testament picture of a pastor is that he shepherds through teaching. He communicates truth line upon line and through his lifestyle. Elsewhere we're told in the Bible that an elder should, someone who aspires to be an elder should be apt to teach. I don't think that necessarily means he has to have the gift of teaching, but he's got to have the stuff. He's got to have the knowledge of the Word of God. You don't want someone leading who has no knowledge of the Word of God. Now, if you were at war, would it mean anything to you to have someone that's going to protect you at the helm, someone who is there for your nourishment at the helm? I bet you believe, I better, we better believe it would help us. We'd feel good about it. It's like having an extra set of eyes. These shepherds shepherd with an eye on themselves. Assuming responsibility for others puts a person in a precarious position for a number of reasons. One, he himself is susceptible to spiritual attack. We need to pray for those who are in leadership among us because they're the first Satan would love to take out. And he's always on the prowl like a roaring lion, seeking whom he might devour. Secondly, the elder's own, own human weaknesses and tendencies may challenge him. Peter assumes these things, likely because he's observed them, and he gives some counsel. He calls the leaders, the elders among the church, to watch out for certain things. Watch your attitude is one of the things to which he calls us. And again, verse 2, Shepherd not because you must, but because you're willing. Another translation says, Don't shepherd under compulsion. Don't do it because you feel you have to, with no sense of personal willingness. Do it because you're called to it and you want to. This is critical. doesn't mean that uh, there won't be times that we're doing something that we don't want to do. Leadership has to do everything. There are a lot of command performances in leadership. There are things that I don't want to do that I have to do. There are things the elders don't want to do that they have to do. What he's talking about here is have a, have a general attitude that drives you to, 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 uh, to do the things that God's called you to do, the things that God has placed in your path, so that the church as a body of armor-bearing believers will be strong. It will be guided as it, is, it is, as it lives a life in conflict. I'm always leery of people in leadership and followership as well who are very willing to tell me what they will do and what they won't do, especially when their list of don'ts is longer than their list of do's. Because the point is, anyone in leadership, whether they're an elder or not, has got to live with a whatever-it-takes mentality. I'm here to do a job, and whatever it takes, we're going to get it done. Would you like to have someone like that on your side in a time of battle? If an elder or, in any, or, uh, or in, if we are an elder or in any capacity of leadership, calling people to accountability, growth, and equipping them for service and endeavoring to model before them an appropriate lifestyle, that's what leadership is, we've got to watch our attitude. So this is what Peter calls them to do. We need to serve willingly, not because we can't get out of it. 
We need to serve willingly in spite of personal emotions. We need to do what God wants us to do. The overwhelming implication is that we in leadership must be expendable. We must be willing to extend ourselves. We must serve when it's inconvenient as well as it's when it's convenient. So elders watch their attitudes. They also shepherd like this. They watch their motivation. Notice the verse again. Not for greedy, not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Let me read it all to you. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve. This is an interesting statement. It tells us a lot of things, actually. It suggests one thing to us, that there were elders who were paid to render service. We know that's true. If you read 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17 and 18, you'll see another example of it. And it probably went something like this. There were a plurality of elders serving in a local church, but there was a need for the congregation to be taught, because that's primarily how an elder functions. He teaches. He shepherds through the Word. And so someone came to whoever it might be. It might be uh, Abraham, could be, uh, uh, could be Simeon, could be someone else. And they, they said to him, look, we think your gift mix is such that the congregation could use you So why don't you give up fishing and give yourself to the word and doctrine and lead us in this way and we'll pay the freight. That's probably how it happened. But Peter is saying, uh, as as, uh, did Jesus, that the, the laborer was worthy of his hire. He's also suggesting it's possible to get a wrong view of remuneration. That's what we pick up on here. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Shouldn't motivate our behavior. It's not wrong to desire proper remuneration, but it's wrong when it's our only motivation or it's our primary motivation. We don't serve because of money. That just frees us up so we can serve. The central issue here is motivation. What is the right motivation? Desire, we should be desirous of being of service. We should have an eagerness toward it. We should have zealousness toward it. This is fairly easy to spot. I remember classic illustration for me in my own experience in life. I was a youth pastor in Fresno, California. And we we had a project going on with a small church in a little place called Fireball. Now you've never heard of Fireball, probably. Anybody here ever heard of Fireball, California? It's not a big place on the map by any means. We were working with this little church and this pastor in this kind of a difficult town, I thought. And he was very, very much full of zeal, called to be what he was, to, to be what he was, uh, to do what he was doing. And I had come from a church of about 2,000 people. Now, in the church of 2,000 people, the pastor had a handsome salary, he had great benefits, he, he also served with zeal. The guy in Fireball had barely enough to get along on. He didn't have too many benefits, but he served with the same zeal. That's the point I want to make. Both of them served with zeal. The secret? Neither one of them were in it for the money. 
One's board and congregation could do better, so they did. The other couldn't, but it didn't stop this guy at all. The key issue to see here is motivation. Both worked equally as hard because both were motivated. So the shepherds, shepherds with an eye on themselves, they watch their attitudes, they watch their motivation. They also watch their leadership style. Shepherd, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. See verse 3? Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. The issue here may well be the issue of control. That's why Peter counsels them not to lord it over others. One commentator says that this, this phrase, lord it over others, means not to master people or to rule them. Don't be domineering over them. The idea given is that uh, some wanted authority so they could wield it. And Peter's saying that's not the way to go about this. It was necessary for their ego, their sense of well-being. Someone said a more subtle temptation than greed or shepherding uh, can't be found. Somebody told me one time the chief issue in any church is the issue of control. There's a lot of truth in that. People can seek and use authority in fiendish ways. This counsel doesn't mean leadership doesn't have authority or that it should be reluctant to use it. Leadership must have authority. Have you ever seen authority or responsibility without authority? It's a mess. Someone gives you the responsibility, they better, or the authority, they better give you the. If someone gives you the responsibility, they better give you the authority too, or you're in a lot of trouble. Leaders enhance their leadership position when they lead by example. That's why Peter says, "Be examples of the flock." So, how do you lead by example? We can cite three ways. When we behave like we want those we lead to behave. Leadership can never afford to say, do as I say, but not as I do. We let others see our behavior. We want people to participate. If we want people to participate in a dynamic group prayer ministry, we should be participating in it as leaders. If we want people to gain from, these, from certain activities and ministries in the church, we should be involved in those activities with them. If we want people to practice good stewardship, we as leaders better practice good stewardship ourselves. We do some things in leadership not because we necessarily need to personally, but because it's the right and good example to set. When we become leaders, we gain certain freedoms and privileges, and we also lose certain freedoms and privileges. All of a sudden, we've got to live more for the benefit of those who are influencing as well as for what we want to live for, what we want to do. So shepherds shepherd. They shepherd with an eye on themselves. They also shepherd with the knowledge that Christ is aware and will reward faithfulness. Look at verse 4. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. There are a couple of things to see in this verse. First, Christ is going to come again. 
This is an ever-present fact. It lingers always just below the surface and well above the surface at other times. Christ is going to come again. Secondly, Christ will honor the faithful. Notice the phrase in here, the word in here, you will receive a crown of glory. This is a trigger word to both Jews and Gentile believers as well. It became a focal point for a variety of emotions and ideas. Um, Jewish bridegrooms, for instance, wore crowns at their weddings. Crowns were an emblem of royalty. It stood, it stood for a lot. So for Peter to say, you will receive a crown of glory, that meant something to these people. Here it embodies the idea of achievement with all the attendant pride and honor that goes with it. What a thought. Something to envision. God will provide a crown for faithful leadership. If I were wishing something special for a people who are in battle, it would be leadership like this. It's a thankless job a lot of times. Because leaders are generally criticized at one time or another, justly and, or even unjustly. It just goes with the territory. So that's just a few words from Peter's musings and Peter's counsel about elders, who they are and what they do. What about followers? Let's share a word about who followers are and what they do. A more familiar term than follower for us is we don't use the term followership. In fact, I don't know that I coined the, no the word, but I know I use it a lot. Another word maybe more commonly known to us is the word disciple. These words follower and disciple were used synonymously in the Gospels. In fact, the term to follow occurs something like 80 times in the Gospels. Both terms describe the relationship between Jesus and his companions. To be a disciple suggests a teacher-student relationship. The term comes from a verb which means to learn. It also includes adopting the lifestyle of the teacher his philosophy and his way of life is a prominent and crucial concept in the New Testament. Just look through the New Testament sometimes at those who had disciples. John the Baptist had disciples. Did you know the Pharisees had disciples? They did. They had those that were following them, learning from them. The Apostle Paul had disciples. And obviously, most importantly at all, uh, of all, Jesus had disciples. So if what a shepherd does is to shepherd, what does a follower do? He follows. And Peter gives us two things to see here. There's a lot more to, set, to be said about followership. But if a shepherd shepherds and a follower follows, how does a follower follow? <laughs> Sounds like a kid's rhyme, doesn't it? They follow submissively. Not a popular word in our day. Not at all. But if leaders are to lead and followers are to follow, it's essential. Submissiveness should earmark the relationship of the younger to the older. Look at verse 5, first part. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. Submissiveness. Those younger submit to those who are older in terms of age. And then logically, those who follow, generally younger, Submit to those who lead, generally older, though not always. Peter did tell Timothy, 
Don't let anyone despise you because of your youth. Timothy was wise beyond his years. He was a leader as a young man. This submissiveness is not blind obedience. There was a movement back in the 70s um, that made a big deal out of elder rule. It was a distortion. And in certain churches, and some of you may remember this, but in certain churches, the elders were rising up and telling people everything they should do with their lives. Who to marry, where to work, where to live, with whom to socialize, with whom you should do business. This is not that at all. This Submissiveness does not suggest that. That's a distortion. Maybe a better word for our day and age is cooperativeness. Peter calls those of us who follow to cooperate with leadership, to cooperate with those who are to shepherd us. And as we cooperate together, the army grows strong, and we're more effective in warfare. And we are at war, are we not? What it is, this thing of uh, cooperativeness, it is giving permission to lead and then going in the direction that leadership points. You always have hollering rights. If leadership is taking you in a direction you feel uncomfortable with, you can let them know it. But the, I, the, the difference between that and digging your heels in is monumental. See what I'm saying? So Peter is saying that the church has leaders, godly ordained men, who are recognized by the congregation. You don't apply to be elder. You're recognized for what you are. You are an elder. And once you're an elder, you're always an elder. You may only serve actively for three years or six years or whatever your constitution and bylaws might say, but you're still an elder for your life because of the quality and the character of your life and the wisdom that you've gained in life from failing as well as by through, through succeeding. And then those, there are those that God gives to follow, the leaders. And they're to do it with humility. The Germans have an interesting word for humility, if I understand it correctly. The word is insagen. And what it means is to self-kill. It has to do with self-killing. And you can readily see its relationship to submissiveness. Submissiveness is one practical illustration of it. It's subjugating our own ego and our own will, and taking direction from someone else. Humility is to characterize both the follower and the leader as well. Notice the text. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. In fact, we should put humility on like we do a, a new coat. We should wear humility as someone wears clothing. This should adorn our character as clothes do our body. It is what God blesses. Notice the quote from Psalm 3, verse 34. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So that's the whole load. I feel a little rusty this morning. I spent too much time in the sun in California, I guess. But that's the whole load about this thing of being a leader and being a follower. In the church, in God's economy, there are those who recognize, who are recognized to become leaders. The congregation affirms that. And then the congregation likewise at the same time says, you lead, we will follow, we'll work cooperatively together, and we will win this battle. 
we will win this war because greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. So the picture we posed earlier of supposing that a battle was to take place is not a supposition at all. It's a reality. You and I, whether we like it or not, whether we feel like it or not, whether we recognize our qualifications or not, you and I are warriors. We're in God's army. And God has provided gracious direction regarding how to be organized in order to function properly. He's provided for leadership by telling them how to lead. He's provided for followership by telling them how to follow. As the war wages on, the question is, leaders, how will you lead? And the question is always, followers, how will you follow? Depending on how we can answer those questions, we know, we can tell whether or not we'll be successful. Isn't God great? He's left nothing to chance. We haven't been listening to someone else's mail this morning. We've been reading our own mail. What's he called you to? To lead or to follow? It's one or the other. Let's do it according to his plan, according to his counsel, according to his direction. And our side will win. Pray with me, would you please? Father, we want to thank you that some 2,000 years ago, Peter laid out for these small clusters of people that were scattered about the part of the world to which he sent his letter. Peter gave them counsel. He gave them direction. And you and your sovereignty have preserved this counsel and direction for us. So that we don't have to be leaderless in terms of human leadership. And leaders don't have to be without followers. It's a privilege to be both a leader and a follower. We pray today, Lord, for this church that's poised for something great to happen here in the months and years to come. We pray, Lord, that you'd help us to be faithful, to pay attention to the blueprint, the game plan you've set forth. Help us, Lord, to know how to lead and how to follow. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to wait upon you for the Lord's tithe and and, uh, your offering right now. And this is a time we also collect the connection cards. So I'll ask you please to put your connection cards in the...